Good morning. Good morning. You know, I told the first service, and I'll tell you guys too, now just be prepared. Somewhere right about noon, there's going to be some people show up, and they're going to be looking for a seat. Y'all just move over and let them sit. And if enough of them show up, I'll just go ahead and preach to a third service after this one's over with. Actually, I think that the sun is going to be peeking out by the time that this service is over with. And when we leave, we won't need our umbrellas. At least that's what I'm hoping. And uh, that uh, I think I told someone earlier, I think we've had about five out of the last six Sundays it's been raining. So uh, uh, it's just been a, been a wet time of the year. But I'm glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for coming and being part of our services here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. You've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do. Please take them. Turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. Now, I will say this to you. When, when, when you're preaching through the text like we are and, and you're going through this, there's times when it becomes a little bit of a challenge to figure out exactly where you divide the text. And, and, and quite frankly, a lot of the division comes off of the amount of time that you have to be able to devote to a particular uh, portion of it. And, and the truth is, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I, I believe, honestly, is attached to the previous text that we looked at last week that began back in, in verse 12 and went all the way through verse 21. And it involved the, uh, primarily the Jesus cursing of the fig tree and his turning over the tables in the temple. And, and I believe that the verses that immediately follow that really are attached to it, but I just didn't have, there wasn't enough time to be able to deal with those verses in addition to the other. So even though I didn't tell you, this is the second half of the sermon from last week. And so those of you who were here last week, you can say, all right, good, I didn't miss anything. And if you weren't here this last week, I'd encourage you to go back and kind of review that passage. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at, at the, 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 the teaching that Jesus is able to give to his disciples in light of what he has just done in cursing the fig tree and also really in turning over the tables of the money changers and those who were selling their wares there in the temple. And in doing so, what we are able to see is that Jesus actually reinforces some lessons for his disciples that they needed to hear, particularly as he knew that his life was coming to an end. We are in the last week of Jesus' life here in Mark chapter 11. And so he takes this opportunity in light of the withered fig tree that stands before the disciples and before him to teach some lessons to his disciples. And so that brings us up to speed to where we are this morning. So let's begin reading in verse 22. Because having just, Peter has just announced, look, Rabbi, the, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Verse 22, so Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And then some of us reading the King James, the New King James have one more verse, verse 26. If you don't have that, just listen to it. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought us together today to be able to study your word together, to sing praises to your name. We pray that in our process of, of studying and, 
but Father, worshiping with all of our hearts, with our minds and with our souls and every part about us, our emotions, that you would, you would do a great work in us today. For many of us, we're concerned about the future. We're concerned about what's going to happen this coming week. Or some of us, we're burdened about things that we have happened to us this past week. We're carrying over from the fact that maybe many of us are kind of struggling through the fact that we lost an hour's sleep last night. Whatever the case may be, we found ourselves here and with our Bibles open before us. I pray that you would help us to understand this word that you have given specifically to us at this particular time to bring good into our lives and to transform us. I pray that that would be the, the result of the time we spend here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned in my introduction, this passage, I believe, is directly tied to what we just studied last week. And particularly, I believe it in light of the fact that the disciples are standing there just sort of gawking with their mouth agape and they're, they're looking as this fig tree that had just 24 hours earlier been in full leaf and full of life, albeit it was fruitless, it was not bearing figs, but it was fully alive. And now 24 hours later, it stands there before them withered from the roots up and it is, it is brown, the leaves are shriveled, and they are just looking at that amazed by what they see. And, and, and when I first read this, I'm a little bit amazed myself because I'm like, Peter, didn't you see it when Jesus walked upon the white caps of the sea? He walked across the water. Wasn't that amazing? And, and wasn't it amazing when Jesus spoke to the, to the wind and the waves and they calmed down and the storm moved out? And, and, and Peter, weren't you with Jesus when he raised the little girl from the dead? And, 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 and weren't you with Jesus upon the mountaintop when he was transfigured before you? But yet you stand here in front of this withered tree as if you were amazed at the power that's being displayed. But here's the thing I would say, as we noted last week, this is the only time that we find a miracle in the New Testament this kind of goes the opposite direction. It's a miracle of destruction. It's not a miracle of creation. It's not a miracle of something where something changes from the negative to the positive. All the rest of the miracles that Jesus performed go that direction. This miracle goes the other direction. It takes something that's, that was alive and now we see that it is dead. And they are amazed by what they see. And it's interesting to me that as they stand there gawking and looking at that, amazed at what they, they see, Jesus uses this moment with this tree in the background to be able to present some lessons to his disciples. And there's three specific ones, and they're tied together, but I want us to see those this morning. And the first lesson that you find there is, is also coupled with that first sub-point that I have given you, and it's a lesson on faith. And so what we learn is to have faith in God means that God must be the object of our faith. God must be the object of our faith. You see, it's to these shocked disciples that Jesus says this. He gives them a command and says, have faith in God. That prepositional phrase is of supreme importance in this command. Have faith in God. Jesus reminds these disciples of the source of the power that actually caused this fig tree to wither. And in doing so, he reminds them that their faith must be in the one that Israel had abandoned. If you'll remember from last week, we, we talked about the fact that the fig tree was a representation of the nation of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that again and again and again. And so the withering of this fig tree actually stood as a testimony to the fact that Israel was withered. Why? Because they had abandoned their faith in God. That was particularly demonstrated in the fact that when Jesus went to the temple, he found that the very place that, that 
praise and worship was to be given to God through prayer had been abandoned because now the people were selling their wares there in the temple court. And that's what caused Jesus to turn over the tables and to, to, to drive out all of the animals and to get rid of that, all of that enterprise that was going on there. And so this withered fig tree standing behind the disciples as they're looking at that was, a, was an indication that they were to have faith in God. It was really a warning to them that they should not do what Israel and Israel's religious leaders had done in abandoning their faith in God. I think it's also important when he says have faith in God, it's important to know what Jesus didn't stop short of saying. He didn't just say have faith. He, he put the prepositional phrase there. Have faith in God. You know, a lot of times we talk about this. We say, well, you know, I believe. Or if you go to a ball game and your team is kind of behind, but they're rallying. I had my first t-ball game last night with my son. And, and we were in the third inning and they were down 15 to 13 and they were rallying and the time ran out. But in my mind, I was thinking about, you know, sometimes when, you're, when your team's behind and there's, what do we say? You just got to believe. You just gotta, and I always want to say, well, believe in what? What do you have to believe in? I want you to finish the sentence. What is it that you're supposed to believe? Because when you make statements like that, you just got to believe. It's almost like you're having faith in faith. And that if you, can, if you can create enough faith in something, whatever that faith is, it's faith that that's going to transform. But I want you to know the Bible is specific about what our faith is supposed to be in. It talks about the object of our faith. Your faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. You can put a lot of faith in something or someone and that something or someone might fail you. For example, if you go out and you see, I don't know why you would do this, but if you were to go out and you see a, a lake and there's ice on it, you know what? You can have a little bit of faith in very thick ice and you can live. But you can have a lot of faith in very thin ice, and you'll drown. You want to know why? Because your faith is only as good as the object in what you place it in. And what I want you to know, the, it is the object of your faith that saves you. Jesus tells his disciples, have faith in God. Trust in him. He must be the object of your faith. If you trust in yourself, if you have not learned this yet in life, Understand, if you trust in yourself, you will ultimately fail yourself. You will. Understand this too. If you trust in someone else, they will ultimately fail you. If you trust in anything, it will ultimately, at some point, fail you. But I want you to know, God will never fail you. That's why He commands us to have faith in Him. He will never fail you. Psalmist David writes this in Psalm 20, verse 7. He says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the Lord God is the only object worthy of our faith and trust. But what else does it mean to have faith in God? Well, notice the second sub-point there under point number one. And what it means is this. Our lives must be totally committed to God. To have faith in God means that our lives need to be totally committed to God. Here's the interesting thing about this command that Jesus gives. He tells us that we must have faith in God, but then he ties that faith to an action. He says specifically that commanding a mountain to be removed and cast into the sea, he ties that to having faith 
in God. Now, we're going to come back to that little point in just a moment, but I want you to think about the implications of what Jesus has just said. He is making the point that genuine faith in God radically will change a person. I like what Craig Evans has put in his commentary regarding this passage. He writes, Faith here, as elsewhere in Mark, represents more than an attitude or state of mind. It means taking a risk with one's total person, with one's heart. In other words, he says, the faith that Jesus calls for requires an absolute and unconditional commitment to or trust in God. Listen, to believe that God is able to move mountains, as it were, to have faith that He is that big and that He is that powerful and that He is that mighty and that sovereign, well, to express that kind of faith in Him necessarily acknowledges that we are none of those things. It means by definition that we place our God, place our faith in God confessing that we are not big and that we are not powerful and that we are not strong on our own and that we are not sovereign over our own lives. Therefore, to have faith in God means to consciously place ourselves under His authority and under His divine rule. R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, trusting God is the obligation of every creature made in His image. It is a moral, ethical, and spiritual duty because not to trust in God is to impugn the integrity of His Word, His promises, and His character. And that's what the nation of Israel had done. That's what, that's what her leaders, her religious leaders had done that. And the withered and dead fig tree that stood there as the backdrop against what Jesus was teaching stood as a reminder of God's judgment upon them because of their lack of faith in God. So looking at his surprised and, and shocked disciples, Jesus instructs them with regard to faith's object and then also with regard to how their life was to be transformed by that faith. But then I want you to notice the next instruction that he gives. He provides another lesson with that fig tree standing there, and it's a lesson on prayer. That's the second point on your outline this morning. And what we learn first is this. To pray in faith means that we have confidence that God, with God, the impossible is made possible. We have confidence that with God, the impossible is made possible. Think about this. Jesus is there coming from Bethany back down to Jerusalem. And as he is standing there with this withered fig tree on the side of the road, we know that he is on the Mount of Olives. And, and what I am told is that on a clear day, standing on the Mount of Olives, one can actually see all the way down to where the Dead Sea is, about 20 miles away, but 3,500 feet below. Now, I think that's just a wonderful visual to have in one's mind when they read Jesus' words that he utters next in verse 23, for he says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will be done, well, he will have whatever he says. Now, the question is, was Jesus being literal here? I mean, did he really mean that by prayer, we can move a physical mountain into the Dead Sea? Well, the first way I would answer that question is this. We don't do anything. I would refer you back to the first point, and that is the object of our faith is God. God is the one who moves mountains. We simply pray for Him to move those mountains in our lives. But the second thing that I would say to you is simply this. As far as we know, the, the, 
the, the mountain there, the, the Mount of Olives, has never been moved into the, the Dead Sea, though that very eschatologically could certainly happen. And, and some believe that this could be a prayer with regard to Passover, a Passover prayer that was asking for God, to, for, for the Christ to come and establish His earthly kingdom. But I tend to believe that more of what Jesus is saying here, particularly for you and I, and, and, and I believe even for his disciples, was something of an analogy. It was something of hyperbolic language. It was something of, of driving them to an understanding that, that a mountain was something that was almost insurmountable. It was, a, it was a, a something in one's life that, that was, by all human accounts, there's no solution to. We even talk about that today. We talk about, I've got this mountain I've got to climb. We, we, we use the same similar language. And I believe that when we understand it that way, what Jesus is saying is that prayer prayed in faith that recognizes God as the proper object of that faith. God has the ability to move those mountains. He has the ability to see that which appears to be impossible and make it possible. And not only to make it possible, to, but to make it true. I love the way that William Lane has summarized what we read here. He says... The man who bows his head before the hidden glory of God in the fullness of faith does so in the certainty that God can deal with every situation and any difficulty and that with him nothing is impossible. So Jesus says that our confidence must be in the God who moves mountains, in the God, in the one who makes the impossible Possible, And then he goes on to tell us that when we pray, we must do so without doubting him. Notice that Jesus says in the last part of verse 23 and into verse 24, he says, If a man does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things, that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. That then leads me to the second sub-point that I want you to see there under point number two, and that is this. To pray in faith means that our attitude toward God must be unwavering. Our attitude toward God must be unwavering. I want you to notice that what Jesus says here is very similar. His, his half-brother James sort of picks up on this. And he writes this in his epistle in James chapter 1, Verses 5 through 8, listen to the similarities to what James says, to what Jesus has just said. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here's the marked difference between faith and doubt. Faith is a settled trust and a confidence in God that is based upon His character and His promises as revealed in Scripture. Doubt, on the other hand, can be described as wavering between trust in God and doubting His promises. It can also be, you can also say that doubt is a wavering between a, a full-on confidence and trust in God and trusting in ourselves or in our circumstances. And what I want you to know is for many, that's where they find themselves in life. They find themselves vacillating between those two places. 
dithering, as it were. That's a good word for you. It's to dither between two opposing opinions. One that understands and has full confidence in God and one that doubts His promises are true. One that, one that dithers between recognizing that God is my sustainer and my confidence is in Him or my confidence is in myself or in my circumstances or in my wealth or in my situation. And what James says is to the person who dithers between those two things, to the one who, who expresses doubt and not full faith, well, that person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the God. Why? Because he says he's two-minded. He has a double mind. He has a mind that takes him one direction and another mind that takes him another direction. And as a result of that, his foundation is unstable. He is like the winds and the waves of the sea that are driven. The pressures will push him this way and another pressure will come and push him that way. And he has no stability underneath him. And James says that person should not expect to receive anything from God because he's double-minded. Now, those are the words of Scripture, and they also apply exactly to what Jesus says here. He says that we are to have confidence, we are to have faith in God, and that our confidence comes from the resolute understanding of who God is, what His cardinal characteristics are. What we might say is this way, that we recognize that God is a good God, we know that God is a just God, we know that He is a holy God, and we know that He never, ever changes and because we know that, then our faith in Him can reside firmly in His promises. And we can then go to Him in prayer and believe that He will do what is right. Now, understanding that, though, causes me as your pastor to have to stop for just a minute, though, and point you to something that I think is very important for us as a congregation to recognize from this passage. Because what I want you to know is that this passage, as, as R.C. Sproul has written, brought forth an entire theology that is errant. In fact, R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, a whole theology based almost exclusively on this text has permeated the Christian world in our day. The word of faith movement, which espouses the idea of name it and claim it, tells us that all we have to do to receive something we want is to claim it is ours in Jesus' name and it will be ours. But I want you to know that there are those who take this, these verses and they conclude that if we have confidence with God, that he can make the impossible possible. And if, and if we don't doubt and we believe, then based upon what Jesus says here, they believe that we should be able to ask God for anything we want, we want because he's duty-bound to give it to us. And I want you to know that such an interpretation of this passage is entirely wrong. And I want to explain to you why. There are two key errors that must be avoided when attempting to understand a saying of Christ or any saying that we find in Scripture, such as the one that we come across here in verses 23 and 24. One of those great errors is the error of commission, which lifts this saying out of its context and turns it into something that it was not intended to say. The second grave error that occurs is the act of omission. It is the act of failing to apply or to understand what else Scripture says about the exact same issue that Jesus is talking about here. And what I want you to know is that those who interpret what Jesus says here as an authorization that allows us to name it and claim it are guilty of both of these hermeneutical errors. First of all, to assert from what Jesus says that God becomes duty-bound to give us whatever we ask for or to do whatever we ask whenever we ask, 
Well, search and assertion, such an assertion commits the error of pulling what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24 away from what he has just said in verse 22. You see, when, when Jesus commands for us to have faith in God, as we've already discussed, that means that such a faith declares that God is sovereign in our lives. It means that we have relinquished control over our own lives and we have committed ourselves completely, totally, and unreservedly to Him. So, in light of that, the question comes up, do servants command their masters? Do sheep command their shepherd? Understand this, we do not command God to do our bidding apart from His will. To demonstrate, to do that demonstrates a failure in understanding what it means to have faith in God to begin with. So that's the first error. But the Word of Faith movement also fails to take into consideration other texts and other passages that speak specifically to the same thing that Jesus talks about here. Passages that are very similar, but they place qualifications upon how we should pray. I'll give you a few examples of that. The first one comes in John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. Jesus says, ask whatever you, and whatever you ask in my name, in other words, whatever you ask that is in accordance and consistent with who I am and why I came, then, then that I will do, and my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's your qualification. Later in John chapter 15, verse 7, here's the qualification. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, in other words, if you are obediently searching out what my will for you is in your life and living that out, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then, he says, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 24, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, well, he will give to you. Ask and you will receive. But even if we didn't have those passages, we have the wonderful example of Jesus just a couple of days later from our text this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed there on the night before he would be crucified. And listen to his prayer according to Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. There's his declaration of faith. And then he says, take this cup away from me. There's his request. Then he says this, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And there's the qualification. And here's what we know. It was not the Father's will to take that cup and to remove it from Jesus. As a matter of fact, according to Isaiah chapter 53, we find out that it was the Father's will to crush him. Why? So that he might, through his death and his resurrection, bring lost men, women, boys and girls to himself and make them into his sons and his daughters. And brothers and sisters, if we have become his sons and daughters, it is nothing short of pure self-centered arrogance to think that we can demand of God the Father to do anything we want for him to do in our lives that is apart from his will. As John MacArthur has written, the will of God can be described as nothing less than being greater, purer, wiser, more generous, more gracious, and more merciful than anything we could ever imagine. So the name it and claim it crowd not only fails 
to keep our Lord's saying in their proper context, but they also fail to compare Scripture with Scripture, and as such, their theology fails to pass the test, and you and I should not be duped into believing it and buying into it. Nevertheless, I do want you to understand this. Our Lord's words here in Mark 11 do command that since we have come to Him and believe in Him in faith, we are to pour our hearts out to Him in prayer. And when we do, we can be assured, just as the psalmist writes in Psalm 84, verse 11, that no good thing will He withhold for those who walk uprightly. Now that promise does not say He's going to give us anything we want, carte blanche, anytime we want it. And since I told this, it came right out of my mouth in the first service. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to let you have the benefit of it too. We dare not pray like Janis Joplin, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I think, and I must make amends. We have to be careful that our prayers before God are not self-centered in that way. Why? Because just as James goes on to tell us later in James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The psalmist also says this in Psalm 66, verse 13. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So the withered fig tree stands there as a perfect backdrop to this instruction by Jesus about faith and then about prayer. And then before he moves on to Jerusalem, Jesus takes one last opportunity to instruct his disciples and us about forgiveness. And that moves us to the last point on your outline this morning. The third point is this. Forgiveness is necessary because, A, God forgives us. Forgiveness is necessary because God forgives us. Notice how in verse 25, Jesus segues from prayer to forgiveness. He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. We'll come back to the forgiveness that we must give to others in just a moment. But I don't want you to miss the importance that Jesus places upon our own forgiveness. You see, brothers and sisters, there is not one single one of us in this room for whom forgiveness is not vitally important and absolutely necessary. Every one of us in this room have broken promises. Every one of us in this room have broken relationships. Every one of us in this room have broken somebody else's heart. Every one of us in this room have created tension. We have caused harm. We have tainted our testimonies because of the things that we have said and done. There is not a single one of us in this room that is not guilty of that in multiple accounts, in multiple ways. And there is not one of us that escapes the need of being forgiven by those that we have offended because of our mistakes and our mess-ups. But I want you to know that even in spite of all of that, there is a forgiveness that you need even more than that kind of forgiveness, horizontally. I want you to notice that Jesus speaks of our need of being forgiven by God the Father. And by saying that, he is pointing us back to the fact that our sin, our disobedience, our selfish bent toward living our lives according to our own rules and for our own pleasures, that necessitates being forgiven by God. In fact, the scriptures teach us that apart from receiving that forgiveness by God, we will spend an eternity in hell under the full weight of the punishment of that sin. But what I also want you to know is that three days 
after uttering these words that we read here in Mark 11, on that Tuesday, Jesus would be nailed to the cross on Friday. And it is there where you and I receive forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment of sinners. He suffered vicariously as our substitute in our place. He took our spot. And as such, God the Father poured out his unmitigated wrath against sin upon his own son so that you and I might be freed from the penalty of our sin and one day be able to stand before him justified, not because of our own righteousness, but the righteousness of his dear son. Forgiveness is only available because Christ died for you. And therefore, the first thing that we have to understand is that forgiveness is necessary because apart from it, we would spend eternity suffering in agony and under the full weight of our transgressions. Forgiveness is necessary because God forgives you. Notice that forgiveness is not only indispensable as something that we receive, but it is also indispensable as something that we extend. It is something that we give to others. According to what Jesus says here and elsewhere, we learn the next lesson about forgiveness. It's the next and last subpoint on your outline. Forgiveness is necessary because receiving God's forgiveness obligates us to practice forgiveness. It obligates us. See, when we've come face to face with all that Christ has forgiven us of, then we realize that we need to be a people who are willing to extend forgiveness to others. Do you remember how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? In Matthew chapter 6, he tells us to forgive. He says, you are to pray this, forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors. Do you see how he ties those two things inextricably together? In fact, they are tied so closely that later on, just a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the words there that are very, very similar to what verses 25 and 26 in Mark 11 say. Matthew 6 verses 14 and 15 say this, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now to be clear, Jesus is not saying that our forgiving of others is a work that we have to do in order to be saved. The gospel clearly tells us there is no work that we can do, including forgiving others, that will ever save us. We are saved by grace through faith. But understand this, what he is saying is that God's grace, when it comes into our hearts, it will make us a forgiving people. What the scriptures reiterate to us is that you and I will demonstrate whether or not we have truly been forgiven of our sins by whether we forgive the sins of others who have sinned against us. And that means that as believers who have been forgiven by God, we do not have the prerogative to hold a death grip onto the grudges that we are bearing against others. We are not to refuse forgiveness to friends and relatives for things that they have done to us. We are not to nourish hatred we are not to cherish animosity. We are not to revel in malice. If we do, then we must take an honest look at our own lives to see if we truly know Christ and the pardon that he has given to us. C.S. Lewis issues a very, very strong warning based upon these verses, and he says, no part of Christ's teaching is clearer, and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins 
provided they're not too frightful or provided there are extenuating circumstances or any of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own. Brothers and sisters, I recognize that as your pastor, these are very, very difficult words and I cannot soft soak them because they come directly from the lips of our Lord. But what he says must be understood and must be applied to our life. To quote C.S. Lewis once again, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something or someone to forgive. Words of our Lord tell us that becoming bitter, seeking vengeance, those things are not virtues. In fact, they're the opposite of virtues. They're sin. Such attitudes hinder our relationship with God and they also hinder our prayers, which is why Jesus says, if you're standing to pray and he hits you with the face and the name of somebody that you are holding a grudge against, you better right then practice what it means to be forgiving. You better right then acknowledge the fact that you owe that person to be forgiven just as Christ has forgiven you because it draws you back to the understanding that your relationship with him stands only on the basis that you have been forgiven. Wow. So Jesus is standing there in front of this withered fig tree and he takes this moment in the waning days of his life to remind his disciples of these three lessons. And I stand back and I'm amazed and I think that, that by necessity means that these are very important lessons that you and I ought to apply to our own lives. It doesn't mean they're easy, but it does mean that they need to necessarily be grappled with, wrestled with, and applied, and that then leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Christ calls us to have a faith in God that results in a committed relationship with him, is characterized by unwavering and confident prayer, and is validated by a willingness to forgive just as we have been forgiven. I believe that that withered fig tree standing by the side of the road just outside Jerusalem represented the rebelliousness of Israel and the judgment that God had passed upon her. But I believe it also served as a warning of what will happen to all who refuse to forgive others, to those who doubt that God is who he reveals himself to be, and to those who refuse to place their faith in him. So let me ask you this question this morning. Have you placed your faith in God? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior? Have you committed yourself totally and unreservedly to Him? If you have not, then I can only ask you why not? Because the Bible clearly reveals that you stand under the weight of your own sins. And the Bible also clearly reveals that Jesus Christ is your only hope and your only source of help. If you trust in anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you will one day end up suffering the consequences of that. But the Lord, in His grace and mercy, bids you to come to Him and express faith in Him and in Him alone. Perhaps you've done that. Then the question becomes, are you trusting in Him for the things that seem beyond your control? Things that appear to have no human solution. 
Are you taking your burdens to him in prayer? Are you believing that he can move mountains in your life? Maybe, maybe the way to really understand it is this. Do you take him at his word and understand that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him? Do you believe that? Finally, if you have been forgiven of your sins, are you practicing forgiveness? Or are you holding a grudge towards someone? Refusing to grant to them what has been granted to you. You see, the Lord calls you to evaluate your response toward others because it serves as a choke point, not only to your prayers, but it serves as a choke point to your being able to express your faith in the God who has forgiven you. Brothers and sisters, these are the lessons that our Lord teaches and as that withered dead fig tree stood in the backdrop of what Jesus taught, he knew that there would be another tree that would stand just a few days later, a tree upon which he would be nailed. And the difference between those two trees is this. This tree, this withered fig tree represents death, but this tree upon whom Jesus died represents life. And he calls us not to be those who dither between those two. He calls us not to be a people who wonder whether or not we're going to go one way or the other, but he calls us to turn our face resolutely toward the cross and to follow him down that same road toward a life lived the way he has called us to. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.